0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Okay, if you have your uh, Bibles with you this morning, or Bible devices or apps, open your Bible up to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be jumping around in the book of Hebrews this morning. As you know, two weeks ago, we began a, a new series entitled Jesus Christ, Prophet priest and king prophet priest and king were three divinely instituted offices first revealed in the uh, old testament as the way god would relate to or have a relationship with his people the ancient israelites and each one of these these offices prophet priest and king was anointed by god to fulfill a specific purpose through the priest, a prophet, God spoke to his people. Through the priest, God brought his people to himself. And through the king, God ruled over and protected his people. Now, ultimately, we have seen that these anointed prophet, priests, and kings were a foreshadowing of a superior and final prophet, priest, and king, final anointed one, not in three, but in one person. In the Old Testament, this person was known as the Messiah. In the New Testament, we know him as the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And all three of those offices of Jesus are mentioned in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. The writer there says in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the ultimate prophet, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. After he provided purification for sins, that's the priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, that's the king, prophet, priest and king. Everything Jesus did prior to His incarnation, He did as either prophet, priest, or king. Everything that Jesus did during His time on earth, His earthly ministry, He did either as prophet, priest, or king. And everything that He is currently doing in His heavenly ministry, He does as prophet, priest, and king. And so, if we are going to know Him, we must know these aspects, we must know these offices, how He functions in them. Now last week we, we looked at Jesus as the ultimate prophet. This week. We're going to begin to look at Jesus as the superior high priest, which is really the predominant theme of the, the whole book of Hebrews. In fact, by the time you get to Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says of Jesus in 8:1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this: we do have such a high priest in Jesus. So eight chapters and there is the, the conclusion. He, Jesus, is our ultimate high priest. Now, in order to understand that, maybe we should go back and just kind of define priest for a moment. A priest is a person who mediates between God and man, particularly between God and His people so that God will receive His people into His holy, special presence in order to bless His people. The general idea is this, is that in order to come in to the presence of God, you have to have someone special to represent us, to prepare us, and to go before us. And in the Bible, this kind of representation, this kind of preparation, this going before us, was the job or the role of the priest. And so what we're going to do this morning and next week, we're going to look uh, at what a priest was under the Old Covenant, how Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant priesthood, how Jesus is now our great high priest under the New Covenant, and how that impacts our relationship with Him and with one another in the greater body of Christ. So with that, let's take a look at and the Old Testament priesthood. Now, when most Christians hear the, the word priest, at least in the biblical concept and <laughs> context, their minds go immediately, of course, to the Old Testament and the priesthood established by God under the Mosaic law. But what most people don't realize is that the priesthood began long before Moses. In fact, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, Those two chapters indicate that Adam was not only to rule as king over the earth, but to also rule as a priest by turning the entire earth into a place that would be suitable for God's glorious presence, just like the garden was. That was Adam's mandate. It was kind of a prototype priest-king mandate. And then in Genesis 8, following the flood, we see Noah taking the role of priest for his family. Likewise, in the first chapter of Job, he does the same for his family. He functions as a priest. When we get over to Genesis 14 and we come to the life of Abraham, we meet this mysterious but very important figure by the name of Melchizedek, who was uh, the king and priest of Salem, an ancient city. And according to Exodus 3, Moses' own father in law, before the law was given, his father in law, Jethro, was God's priest in Midian. And so you got these priests all over the place with no connection, with no continuity one with another until we get to Moses. Through Moses, God established an official and exclusive priesthood headed up by Moses' elder brother. Aaron and his descendants in the tribe of Levi so in the Old Testament you had this unofficial priesthood followed by the official Levitical priesthood from Moses on both of which in unique ways foreshadowed the ultimate priest Jesus Christ and therefore to understand the priestly ministry of Jesus we need to see what led up to it we need to see what was before it we need to learn something about the Old Testament priesthood and we're going to do that by looking first at a couple qualifications of the Old Testament priesthood under Moses and then we're going to look at two functions and then we'll take the rest up next week so first of all qualifications And we're going to see the qualifications and then how Jesus fulfills those and again what that means to us. So there was a variety, of course, of qualifications. We're not going to go through them all. But two were primary. Two are emphasized. First of all, the priesthood, or especially the high priest, had to be appointed by God. And secondly, had to be holy before God. Appointed and holy. So in the Old Testament... Priests were never self-appointed. They were not appointed by other priests. They weren't appointed by the prophets. They weren't appointed by the kings. They weren't voted in by the people. Only God could appoint a priest. In Exodus 28, God said through Moses, have Aaron your brother brought to you along with his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Later on in the book of Numbers, God clarified the seriousness of this calling By saying, if any Israelite presumed the office of a priest, worked as a priest, anyone other than from the lineage of Aaron, that person should be put to death. This was a serious thing. So the priesthood of the Mosaic law was exclusively from Aaron's family of the tribe of Levi. In the definition of a high priest in Hebrews chapter 5, we see the same thing. Hebrews 5.1, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, besides being appointed by God, priests also had to be holy before God because the priests served near the special presence of God, the tabernacle and then the temple, um, they needed to be holy. And by holy, I'm not just referring to their morality, but their set-apartness. That's what the word holy really means. It means to be set apart. And so the priests were to be especially set apart from the rest of the people. Um, set apart unto God for this special kind of service and that's why when you read through the Old Testament and you come to all the descriptions about the priests there were so many regulations that governed every aspect of their everyday life and there were so many ritual cleansings that governed every aspect of their work as priests and together all of these regulations and rituals were God's way of saying these men Are especially set apart to me, and you cannot come into my holy presence without them. In order to have a relationship with me, you need a priest, especially the high priest in Israel. Now, Jesus perfectly fulfills both of these qualifications. Jesus was appointed. Going back to Hebrews chapter 5, we read again every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And no one takes this honor on himself but receives it when called, when called by God just as Aaron was. Now notice this, in the same way. In the same way. In the same way, God did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. Christ did not take on himself the glory of God, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he does, says here, Christ didn't take it on himself. It was granted to him by God the Father. Jesus was appointed. It says here as the ultimate high priest. When? When God said what? You are my son. When was that? We saw last week, That was at his baptism. And it was at his baptism by John that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and he was anointed prophet, priest, and king. And so what this is saying is at that very moment, Jesus was anointed high priest by the Father. This is my Son. Listen to Him. And since God Himself did this, Jesus certainly met the qualification that a priest must be appointed by God but at the same time we have to realize that this appointment was somewhat unusual because Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi he was from the tribe uh, of Judah that was the kingly tribe we often refer to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the reason is is Jesus wasn't just a priest he is a priest king you put it together yet we're almost there and that's why the writer of hebrews said in verse 6 and he god said in another place in scripture you are a priest forever in the order of melchizedek now who what was melchizedek he was a king priest it says, in another place. That refers to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm. And there's a promise made there that, that one would come through David's lineage who would be a king. This king would not rule for just a few years, but forever. But he would also be a priest, but not like Aaron. He would be a priest like the priest king, Melchizedek. First uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. So this is the Lord Father says to my Lord the Son. David speaking here. God the Father saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now what's that? That's a king. There's a king. That's the king that would come in David's line who would rule forever. And then he says this. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest. So we have a king-priest. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah was always expected to be a king-priest. Now according to Hebrews chapter 7, if you'll hang with me, the fact that Jesus was not appointed priest from the tribe of Levi according to the law of Moses, but was a king-priest in the order of Melchizedek meant two things. Number one, that Jesus was in fact the long-awaited for and promised Messiah because the promised Messiah would be not just a king, not just a priest, but a priest king. But secondly, it said with an exclamation, salvation would not come through the priesthood and the law of Moses, but rather through the priesthood and grace of King Jesus. John 1.17, For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Other than Melchizedek and Jesus, the only other priest king in the Bible was who? Adam. There's only three. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. When tempted in the second garden, The second Adam did not succumb to temptation, but rather obeyed, saying, Not My will, but Your will be done. And because He did that, you're sitting here this morning saved by the grace of God. Second qualification, Jesus was holy. Like the Levitical priests were required to be holy and set apart, to God to carefully carry out the duties of God assigned to them. So Jesus, in an infinitely superior way, was set apart by God to fulfill His duties with absolute perfection. From the very beginning, Saul, or Hebrews chapter ten, when Christ came into the world, He said this: "Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said." Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, the Old Testament, I have come to do Your will, O God. And He perfectly followed the will of His Father His entire life. He did exactly what His Father commanded. John fourteen twenty three. He spoke only what His Father gave Him to say. He did only those things He saw His Father doing. John 5.19 He perfectly glorified the Father. John 17.4 Through His obedience we are saved because when we believe on Him, His perfect obedience becomes our obedience before the Father. Because He was set apart to the Father, we are now set apart to the Father. His righteousness before the Father has become our righteousness before the Father. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. His obedience becomes our obedience. His set-apartness becomes our set-apartness and his righteousness becomes our righteousness he is the perfect high priest now let's go from qualifications we could do more there but we'll leave off there let's go let's go to the functions we're going to look at two functions of the priesthood this morning and how Jesus fulfilled them first the priest led worship And, and by worship I don't mean just the act of worship they did but they led people into the possibility of even coming before such a holy God. In in essence, the priests made it possible to come before the presence of God through the sacrifices they offered. The blood of these sacrifices atoned for sin and, and made it possible for the people to come before God's holy presence. Now in an infinitely greater way, Jesus, the ultimate priest, fulfills this function of the priesthood and makes it possible not only for us to come before God's presence, but to actually enter into God's presence, not through the blood of bulls and goats offered by the priest, but by His own blood shed on the cross. Hebrews 10 says as much. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Now these verses, we could spend all day just on that verse, but in a nutshell, they say Jesus is the great high priest who takes us into the most holy place into God's presence. But not only is He the priest who takes us into the holy place, He also is the Lamb whose blood was shed so we could go in to the most holy place. Furthermore, He's not only the priest who takes us in. He's not only the Lamb whose blood was shed so we could go in. He is the most holy place Himself. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. And His body, these verses says, is the curtain that hung over the most holy place. And on the cross, that curtain which represent His body was torn from top to bottom in Jerusalem signifying now we are free to enter the presence of God. We can draw near to God with full assurance of faith. He is the most holy place. He is where heaven and earth intersect. We don't go to a building. We go to Jesus. He's where we meet with God. So we don't need a temple to come before God. Jesus is the temple. We don't need a priesthood to enter God's presence. Jesus is the ultimate priest who has made a way for us to enter in. We don't need our blood, sweat, and tears to earn the blessing of God. Jesus sweated great drops of blood, shed His blood, and tore the curtain of His body on the cross to bring us the blessing of God once and for all. Amen. Now, how Now, how do you respond to that? I'm with you. Here's here's what the writer of Hebrews said. Here's how how the writer of Hebrews said we we should respond. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have such a great, such an awesome high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. confidence. Confidence. Where do we get that confidence from? We had a, you had a good week last week? Is that what it is? Yeah, you prayed every day. You should be confident to enter in, right? You read your Bible every day. You should be confident to enter in. No, that's not what that's saying at all, isn't it? Our confidence isn't in anything we do. It is in Him and what He has done. That confidence is not attached to your performance, but to what Christ has done on the cross. And that means on your worst day, you have the same confidence. Because He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, our great High Priest. Now look at one more thing there before we go on. Look, it says, you come before the throne of grace with confidence so that you receive what? An award for your great week? No, you receive what? Say it out loud. When do you need mercy? When you sin. (laughs) You need grace to help you, to empower you, but when do you need mercy? The only time you need mercy is when you... And yet, you're confident in going before the throne to get the very thing you need when you sin. Why? Because your confidence isn't in your track record. It's in the cross. It's in what Christ has done. It's what not you, the priest, has done. It's what Jesus, the great high priest, has done. Alright, the second thing the priest did, function-wise, was they made offerings before the Lord. Grain offerings, Weed offerings, wine offerings, mostly animal sacrifices, those kind of offerings. Hebrews 8.3, every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So the priests made all kinds of, of different offerings on behalf of the people. But most important, by far, by far were the sacrifices made for atonement. The general idea behind atonement is pretty straightforward. While sin may be uh, egregious and painful to us, before holy God, it is an offense of immeasurable magnitude that must be judged by God. Think about it. Just one sin in the garden caused judgment that upended the whole universe and brought death to all creation. The point of it is, because of our sin, human beings deserve divine judgment. In the garden, God said, when you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. In spite of this crushing reality, God has provided a way of escape through substitutionary sacrifice. We first see it in the garden when the life of the animal was taken by God to provide coverings, skins for Adam and Eve after the fall. We see it again on the night of the Passover when the lifeblood of the Lamb covered the people from divine judgment. Finally, we see substitutionary sacrifice codified in the law of Moses through the various animal sacrifices offered by the priests. But none of these sacrifices, none of them, throughout the Old Testament, provided permanent forgiveness of sin. Yes, through them God forgave his people, but not on the basis of the offering itself, but rather on what the offering pointed to. The ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Since these sacrifices in the Old Testament were temporary in nature, they they needed to be offered over and over and over and over again each year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. From the days of Moses to David, this took place in uh, the worship structure of the Israelites known as the tabernacle. After that, in the permanent structure in Jerusalem known as the temple. But in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a 3 part tent-like structure that included a fenced-off courtyard. and, And then inside that, a large covered room called the Holy Place. And in the back part of the Holy Place, a smaller room cordoned off by a very, very thick curtain called the Most Holy Place, otherwise known as the Holy of Holies. Now, on the Day of Atonement, after the high priest offered a bull for his own sin and his family's sins outside of the holy place on the altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar, it was about six by six, four feet high. After he did that, there was brought to him two goats. And those goats were to be as similar in appearance as possible. They also had to be unblemished. No spots because they were to represent sinlessness, just like the original lambs that were offered on the night of the first Passover in Egypt. When we call Jesus the Lamb of God, it's a reference to the lambs offered on the night of Passover. We could also call Jesus the goat of God, as we're going to see here, because the goat, the sacrifice of the goat also represents what He did for us. But goat of God, Lamb of God. I'm going with Lamb of God. It has a better sound to it. So you have these, these two goats. They were to be similar in appearance. They were to be spotless, unblemished, to represent sinlessness. Now one goat, one goat right there at the altar was, was slain by the high priest and its blood in utensils was carried into the holy place and then he and he alone, only once a year, the high priest, went around the side of the curtain into the most holy place where he took that blood and he sprinkled it over what was known as the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat was a lid on a box called the Ark of the Covenant. The box was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. On top, a lid inside the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments from Moses. And so what he was doing was, when he took the blood of the sacrifice in, and, and by the way, above this lid, God said in Exodus 25, that's where my presence will dwell with my people, Exodus 25, right there above the lid. And so when Moses came in, or when the high priest, excuse me, came in and sprinkled the blood over the lid, what it was doing was it was covering the law which had been broken by the people from the sight of God. When God looked down, he did no longer saw the broken law, he saw the substitute blood that was shed for them. That was atonement. The blood covered over. But this offering of blood on the mercy seat did something else. It satisfied the demand of God's justice that sin be judged. Instead of the people being judged, the animal was judged as a substitute. Now, God is free to bless instead of judge the sinner, Because their sin had been judged in a substitute. And that judgment satisfied the justice of God that said sin must be punished. God is satisfied. Now He's free to bless the sinner instead of judge the sinner. That in the Bible is known as propitiation. We'll look at it in a little bit. Then the high priest, after all of this, would come out back through the holy place, out into the courtyard, and there still was that other goat there, remember? He's still there. And the high priest would then uh, lay his hand on the head of that remaining goat to symbolically transfer the people's sin guilt to the goat, after which this goat was taken outside of the camp into the wilderness to die. We know that as what's commonly known as the scapegoat, right? Right? Now, what did this represent? It represented the fact that the sin of the people was being carried away from them. That it wasn't on them. It was the removal of sin guilt of the people through, again, a substitute. Now the sinner is free from their sin and able to enter God's presence because why? Their sin was carried away by a substitute. The first uh, uh, goat, The sin was born to satisfy God. See, the work of Christ on the cross is first for God. Then for us, but both in totality. After that, then the, the, the second goat carried away the sin. Now, that's called expiation. So we're learning a lot of words this morning. That one's not in the Bible. That's just a theological word, but the first two are all over the Scriptures. And because they're in the Scriptures, we should know them. The Scriptures were written to you, not to theologians. Right? So we had what? Atonement. That was covering over. Right? Then we have propitiation. That was satisfying the justice of God that says sin should be punished. And God said, I'm satisfied. And then you have expiation. That's The removal of the sin guilt from the person. Now this is why the Son of God came into the world through the incarnation. Hebrews 2 says as much. For this reason, verse 17, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, without a doubt, Jesus' death on the cross was the greatest way that Jesus functioned in his high priestly ministry. It was also unique in the fact that Jesus not only made the offering for sin, he became the offering for sin. He's not just a great high priest, he is the lamb or goat of God. He not only was the ultimate high priest who made the offering, he was the ultimate once and for all final sacrifice for our sins and as we saw earlier the Old Testament priests were responsible for continually offering a variety of offerings and sacrifices on behalf of the people and over the centuries centuries now there were probably billions of of bulls and lambs and, and goats offered, but none of them again permanently took away sin none of them permanently satisfied the justice of God but every one of them was a foreshadowing, again, of an ultimate sacrificial offering that Jesus rendered when He died on the cross for our sins. Now one day, John chapter 1, the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus comes to him. Before he says that, John says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks at Jesus and he says, There is God finally. God's Lamb. All these other lambs never took away. Finally, here's the one that will. Here is God's Lamb. He is firstly a lamb from God. In the fact, He is God's provision to bear the judgment for our sin. Because think about it, only God can bear the wrath of God. No human being could ever do that. Secondly, he is a lamb for God, and that he came to propitiate. God, satisfy the claims of his justice that sin be punished. Thirdly, he is a lamb for us in that he takes away our sin like the scapegoat. So when the Bible says that God so loved the world he gave his one and only son, this is exactly what that's talking about. God loved us so much he gave his own son as a sacrifice on the cross in order to propitiate or satisfied the demands of His own justice. And that's why on the cross Jesus said, it is finished. He is satisfied forever. Forever. It is finished, the Greek literally reads, it is finished with the results that it goes on being finished forever. The Father is satisfied. That's why Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemning sentence for those who are in, G- in Christ Jesus. Why? He satisfied. the cross. Jesus' sacrifice completely, once and for all, satisfied the righteousness of God. The justice of God. He paid the penalty in, in full. 1 John 2, the Apostle John says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice this. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. But you know, not only did Jesus provide propitiation, He also provided expiation or the removal of sin for us. That's the second goat, remember? See, He's not only seen as the goat that was slain at the altar of the temple, He's also seen as the goat that was taken into the wilderness to die. He bears our sin penalty. He removes our sin guilt. That's why Jesus, like the scapegoat, was taken outside of the city to be crucified. One book, one story, one hero. Over and over and over again we see this, don't we? That's why Jesus was crucified outside the city. Now in the light of all that, in the light of such a great high priest, How can we ever say, I don't know if God can forgive me? How can we ever say that? Even more, I don't know if God will forgive me. The only reason that you would ever say something like that is you've yet to take him as your lamb and priest, take him as your high priest. Take him as the Lamb of God slain for you. He satisfied the Father. He took away your sin. It is finished. But even more, how can we say, I know God forgives me. I just can't seem to forgive myself. But why would you need to forgive yourself with such a great high priest? Oh, you're a better priest, are you? You see what we're doing when we say that? In essence, we say, we're saying, I can't forgive myself. I need something more than the great high priest. You see the wrongness of that right away. Why would you need to forgive yourself if he's your Lamb of God? Why do you need to carry your sins outside the city if he already carried them out for you? So by faith, take Him as the Lamb of God slain for your sins, as the great High Priest who made a way to the Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray for everybody here this morning that the truth of what Christ has done for us as prophet and priest and king would become ever more real and real and real so that it It just dominates our life and brings us joy and peace and happiness. Help us, Lord, to understand the greatness of the Gospel. Help us to believe the Gospel more deeply. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let's all stand. I'd like our prayer team to come up at this time. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here for a few minutes after the service. If you can hang out for some fellowship in the atrium, please do so. If you've got to go... Safe travels. We'll see you next week. me and me to Who controls the world? it was the same thing. They offered sacrifices too. Because remember the pre Levitical priest in Adam? Well, actually, God did that one. But to see him know it that? that, to see him joke i not you. No one but you. I, it. It I mean, no, right. Right. No. It is it I mean, i Who's made the Genesis three: The head, of the, uh, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, and he shall bruise his heel. Whatever. Always know every person in the cross of Christ. So you, you see it right away. Um, you know, I can do. You see.